0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Youngblood.
1: I'm Hannah Mazel.
0: And I'm Brian Hamm. And this week's episode is brought to you by—I I don't have it yet. I was just kidding. We don't have sponsors. Nobody's sponsoring this podcast. But one of these days, I'm gonna just drop it right in the middle of an episode. Like we finally landed that like sweet me undies cash, and uh, it's gonna be like five dollars in each of our pockets. What
2: if we go from nothing to like John Hamm reading a Mercedes spot, <laughs>
0: like all the way? to, the, to Like setting it yeah. down. <laughs> I know there are some like cooler podcasts than ours that actually bring in the fake sponsors just as like a joke thing. And I've thought about trying to write them, but I feel like they either sound too serious and then it's not funny at all. It's just like a free ad for somebody else or I just get sad because I wish we had real sponsors. If you're out there and want to sponsor the podcast, you're welcome to. I don't know what we charge. Or something like that. I was going to say $20. let us not oh, sell it, ourselves yeah, short. That's true. We work hard on this. Yeah. 20, 20 yeah. bucks. It's yours. You know where to find <laughs> us. at Cape The DMs are open.
2: Come on, Quiznos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this week we are talking about, in advance of the new Netflix season 2 of Iron Fist, sweeping the nation. We're we'll going to be talking about Iron Fist on this week's episode. But before we get into that, we always talk about a little bit of superhero news. I always write everything down like in order that I want to talk about it. I'm actually going to start this time with what I feel like is going to be maybe the most contentious news uh, that came out of the week, which is the rumor, rumoredly, Tom Cruise on Green Lantern, or at least DC wants Tom Cruise on Green Lantern. And uh, did any of you read about the supposed weird, uh, what he insisted on before he would even consider the script? What? No, no. Yeah, Tom Cruise is supposed supposedly... Can't say this enough. Supposedly, potentially interested in the Green Lantern script, but he took a look at the script and he realized that his character, Hal Jordan, was going to die in the movie. And he said he would not do it if Hal Jordan dies. So it's a standoff. Tom Cruise versus
2: DC Comics. anybody? Do you think they can get around it if he doesn't die but becomes a specter?
0: I'm guessing that they were angling for because there are comics where Hal Jordan does die. I mean, there's comics where every superhero dies. So I would guess they were trying to lean into that, but it doesn't sound like Tom Cruise. I'm not thinking Tom Cruise is really well versed in the superhero comic resurrection <laughs> cycle. How how dare you?
1: I don't even know what to say to this. I'm I'm shocked because it it doesn't make any sense.
3: What his cat like the casting or that like wow. that little piece of news?
1: Oh, I mean everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like why he of all people would be approached for that kind
3: of i don't know because like i like i've always seen how jordan is like this younger guy like tom cruise is 56 years old like actors stay in these roles for a long time which like knowing like knowing that rumor it makes sense of like him playing Hal jordan and then like the ring finding someone else yeah he's also been one of those actors where i've just been wondering where his superhero like tentpole movie you know is
2: so it's called mission impossible and it is spectacular
0: (laughs) that's the thing is he does already have like at least one really great franchise under his belt that everybody really loves and that i i think is terrific there was a there was a brief moment where he was going to be in like a long-running mummy franchise doesn't sound like that one's going to work out super well but uh there's always edge of tomorrow too i don't know that he needs a superhero movie and if these rumors are true, then maybe the reason he doesn't have one is just that he always wanted to exercise too much control over the script.
3: I don't think he needs one either, but like if he's going to sign up to be like in the D or Warner brothers, dark universe, whatever that <laughs> is, like that just like absolutely crash and burn. Like, I feel like he would definitely like want to sign on for either Marvel or DC. And they probably like wanted him on just to like get people in the theater after like, everything has failed as bad as it has it is still a really odd choice for him to be Hal Jordan Green Lantern I just can't see it
0: although in the comics Hal Jordan was a uh, like kind of a ne'er-do-well uh fighter pilot Tom Cruise does have some experience with those types so it's not it's not totally out of left field for me I just kind of feel like in 2018 if it's not a Mission Impossible movie I don't really need it to be a Tom Cruise movie
3: Give me Army Hammer.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they thought about. That. Although I wonder if Army Hammer is looking at superhero franchises and just thinking, kind of no, thank you at this point, because every time he's tried for something really big, big budget, it's it's falling apart, and he's doing really well in smaller roles.
2: I feel like the problem with Green Lantern uh, and Tom Cruise is like Green Lantern doesn't do a lot of sprinting, <laughs> and it seems like that is Tom Cruise's primary. Like, the, the thing he brings to his role. And he sprints very well. Like, Mission Impossible 6 is, like, my favorite movie of the year, I think. And He can um, run 40 miles an hour. In that <laughs> yeah. But, like, I don't really see that how that translates to, like, cosmic space cop. But He can't really do his own stunts quite as
0: much in a Green Lantern movie. Right. Everything's happening exactly. against a green screen. It's not the superhero I would
2: choose for him, I guess. No,
0: probably not. There was a time that he passed on Iron Man before Robert Downey Jr. said yes.
2: I wouldn't, like yeah, I wouldn't like him as Iron Man. Yeah,
0: I wouldn't like him as Iron Man. And I don't think he would have stayed in his long.
1: I feel like Tom Cruise, I, I I do enjoy his movies. I'm, you know, like you guys, I love the Mission Impossible franchise. I just don't ever see him playing too many characters that don't feel like Tom Cruise. Like, I feel like Tom Cruise is always playing kind of another version of himself. For Like, I loved him in Tropic Thunder, where I feel like you saw him play, like, for the first time, maybe. I can't think of another movie. Correct me if I'm wrong. But, like, where he played kind of a villain. And I feel like he could make a good, like, charismatic villain um, in one of these movies.
0: I think Tom Cruise in full-on bad guy mode would be really interesting. I don't know if we've ever seen, like, a straight-up villain. I mean, collateral. Ah. Yeah. But even that did feel like it was pretty much just Tom Cruise as a bad guy. Not, like, nearly right, like, right. megalomine... What am I trying to say? Megalop, a bad guy. <laughs>
3: Keep keep going. No, 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 no. I'm
0: going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to return to this a little bit later.
2: Sponsored by Babblefish.
0: (laughs) 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 One character that I think is really, and this happened like right as we were recording last time, uh, but we'll return to it now. A character that I think is, makes a lot of sense for her role is that Ruby Rose was cast as Batwoman for a new CW show. A few interesting points about this. One is I'm really surprised that the CW has Ruby Rose money in its budget. It just doesn't seem like a really, uh, it seems like an awfully low budget studio to land somebody. Ruby Rose isn't an A-lister, but she's not a nobody either. And then the other piece of news about that is that uh, she, I think it's great casting. Apparently some people on Twitter did not feel the same way to the point that she deleted her own Twitter account because of all the backlash that she was getting.
3: I mean like convince me like why should I I I don't hate her for the fact that they casted her this way but I just don't see it
0: oh you don't see it but don't you see about it well one I've
3: just never like I don't know anything about her truly outside of John Wick 2 so I will own that I'm even like looking at her like her actual roles she was just in the Meg which like the Meg was the Meg. And like, she, you know, like, I
0: haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. I can't make any judgments about her based on the Meg.
3: Sure. But I just like, yeah, I'm just curious like why I, I don't understand why you're so excited about it. I also don't understand why everybody else is like very heated about it. So I yeah, I just don't understand why nobody's really given her a chance either way.
0: Um, oh, what do you uh, Before I chime in, what do you guys think?
1: Um, I just remember when Gal Gadot was casted as Wonder Woman we Had well, I should say, you all had very, um, you know, I oh, I should say, Chris, I guess Tyler, I got Brian. Are you supportive of this casting? We haven't gotten to you yet.
2: Uh, it's I mean, it's fine. I didn't, I'll like, I'll confess, I didn't know who she was. Um, but I like the only thing I've seen her in, I think, is John Wick, too. And she was, uh, she was good at that. I mean, it was, it's kind of weird and l- like, I mean, it's just hard to tell because she didn't talk in John Wick, so. But she was really good. She was really good in that. Well,
1: I just feel like, you know, when Gal Gadot was cast as Wonder Woman before, people had, you know, we hadn't really seen her much other than, I guess, a few Fast and Furious movies. Was she just in one or was she in a few? She was in Um, two, I think. Okay. But, you know, like, I don't know if these movies, or even, the sorry, in particular, the television series require, like, you know, um, method acting level here, uh, performances. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, it's the, the presence. And I feel like she's, like, she's definitely got, a, like, a real kick-ass vibe to her that I feel like would really work. Yeah. And it's the CW. I think, like, <laughs> and I respect that. And that's what their viewers want. I'm surprised that there's so much backlash about it. Other than maybe these are people who just don't, you know, really care for a, you know, a lesbian superhero to begin with, maybe? I'm sure that's part
2: of it. Yeah, I would guess that. I also, like... I will say that the one thing that, you know, could be more make or break is that like she's Australian, so I guess it just kind of depends on how her American accent like that. is. That can always be a little iffy, especially when it comes to TV stuff. Whereas, you know, Galkado had or Gal Gadot? I never remember. Um, how you know she could kind of lean into the British thing. But um, but Hannah, I think you hit the nail on the head with your <laughs> diagnosis of the actual problem underlying. Um, I think my favorite thing was like uh, People on Twitter not understanding like, or freaking out because it was announced that Batwoman would be a lesbian, and everyone's like, what? (laughs) And it's like, have you you guys not read comics for like 30 years? Because this should not be a surprise.
0: And it is a little confusing. I can understand why you would get Batgirl and Batwoman confused. They are separate characters, and Batwoman is gay and Batgirl is not. But people need to take a quick second to Google before they start freaking out on Twitter. I think that... Hannah's right this it's the c w so it, the stakes are a little bit lower inherently, and everything on the c w is mostly just a soap opera, and in the case of some of the shows, they have some superhero moments thrown in, like Arrow and the Flash so I, I don't think that there's gonna be a lot of um, acting demanded of anybody on this show, which is not a, to discount any of Ruby Rose's talents because like everybody else here, I don't really I haven't seen her in a place where she was really stretched in terms of her talent. But in terms of the general vibe of being, of being kind of a, having a badass look to her, of obviously being able to jump in and handle the fight scenes without having any problems, she's uh, have a lot of has a lot of experience as an action star, which is something that really threw off our main subject today, the Iron Fist show, is that Finn's, Finn Jones doesn't know how to fight, and I think with Ruby Rose, you can just kind of wind her up and let her go, and she'll know how to handle the stunt choreography. I think it's a, I think it's a solid casting. It's at least. Uh, in terms, of, if it's anything like the rest of the CW shows, it'll have an okay first season, a good second season, and then kind of stop being interesting to me after a while. Mm. Other than Legends of Tomorrow, which I continue to think is a great show.
3: I'm just mad that Hannah crapped on uh, Gal's performance in Fast and the Furious movies, but that's fine.
1: No, I haven't seen it. I was just saying it's not, that...
2: It's not very good to me. Are, like, are you kidding? Awesome. She's so charming. <laughs>
1: charming spades. I'm just... At least, you know... Movies I've seen her. No, I was saying you guys were, were were doubting before that movie came out about her, her. You know, I don't remember
0: my reaction when I heard she was cast.
1: Maybe it was just Ryan. I def I definitely remember Ryan. You're like, eh.
3: I honestly feel like a politician. Like I kind of understand how they get caught up in like what they have and haven't said <laughs> and like what side of the- <laughs> like. <laughs> uh, yeah, I kind of get it. I'm like, no, I've always been a fan. But yeah, I might have actually been pretty harsh on her. <laughs>
1: that's okay. We, we've all been wrong.
3: <laughs> yeah, I guess.
0: Let's see. We'll turn to uh, the last piece of uh, t- lots of TV news this week. The last one, and I'm actually getting pretty excited about this, is the new Watchmen series that's going to be debuting on HBO. Now we you know it's going to be debuting early next year. This is the one that Damon Lindelof coming off of Lost and The Leftovers is putting together. All we really know about it at this point is that Jeremy Irons is going to be – starring in it, and it's going to be what they keep calling a remix of Watchmen. I don't know what that means. That's not a word I associate with the medium of television, but it's going to be a remix of the Watchmen series. I love the Watchmen. I'm glad it's getting another shot at an adaptation after the movie. I think there's potential there for it to be good. I, I would be re- way more nervous if it wasn't for Lindelof, because I, I really do love the Leftovers, and and this feels like a good possibility for him, so I'm excited to see where they go with it. But we haven't really seen anything else besides that, this announcement. It Could go a lot of directions.
3: So I don't know who all has actually read Game of Thrones, but isn't doesn't the TV series, like the HBO series, actually? Couldn't that be defined as a remix? Like, don't they kind of stray away from some of the storylines? Well, they got
0: they got ahead of the books, didn't they? The TV series moved along faster than the books did, so they had to sort of guess at the last two. Okay. Not guess. I think they had just had to. They they had to consult with George R. R. Martin, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've watched it and read it, so like they do kind of, but it's they basically just kind of stray a little bit more toward the later seasons. Um, but they stick pretty close to the book. I like. I think with. I'm wondering if the remix stuff. I'm wondering, and this is a bad example, uh, like of how not to do it, but I wonder if they're gonna go more like the route of Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies where it takes like the source material and then like basically incorporates a ton of um, like additional content that wasn't in the book, but was like in appendices and in other works and stuff like that. Um, Like, I wonder if they'll use some of the before Watchmen comics um, to kind of flesh out the world. Cause I have been curious, like how they're going to adapt like the comics beyond how, how they're going to adapt like such essentially like a short book into a multi-season uh, HBO series. So I wonder if they'll lean in on the, um, some of the before Watchmen and some of the current stuff that Jeff Johns is writing.
0: And there is in the Watchmen comic book, there's a lot of material that sort of hinted at a lot of backstory that is teased without ever really getting fully fleshed out. So I, I think you could, plausibly stretch that
2: out which like i actually think is one of the like strengths of the comic so yeah like totally. like i think i'm a little more guarded like i like leftovers um but i did not like lost or at least how like the last like four seasons of lost Sure, and i did not like alien covenant so i think like i, I mean i'm a little more guarded in this like i hope it's good but it feels like Watchmen is such a like overexposed, yeah. That's true. Like yeah. IP. <laughs> I feel so cliched using the phrase IP, but like it's so overexposed, and it feels like one of those things that like very important men you know, who like think very important thoughts about very important comics always like to bring up. So <laughs> it
0: is kind of an infinite jest of the comic book world. It, it feels very right. like white man. Like ooh, I
2: like the Watchmen. while you're sniffed? <laughs> With your like snifter of brandy, yeah, exactly. And I think, and I mean, I think some of its politics are a little bit, uh, like a little bit hard to swallow. Um, in retrospect, um, you know, obviously who's writing in the Reagan and Thatcher area era, and some of the stuff he's writing about, particularly like the character of Rorschach, becomes much more difficult to swallow in like the alt right era. But, um, I mean, but I think I actually think if Lindelof can tap into some of that, it could be a really cool show. Somebody on, well, I think it was uh, a
0: friend of mine who pointed out on. Uh, and one of the replies on our Twitter, my friend Kevin Cheen said that as uh, time goes on, a lot of the strengths of the Watchmen have gotten a little bit weaker and its weaknesses have gotten even weaker. And I think that's really true. It just hasn't. It, it's an amazing achievement for the medium. And if you haven't read it, I really do recommend you do because it's very influential. And And I think the way that Alan Moore put the comic together is really, really interesting. And and uh, a lot of the the side stories like the tales from the black freighter it's a really impressive feat i'm not sure that its message or its morals has aged particularly well which isn't to say that it couldn't be or that couldn't be explored but maybe that's part of the reason they don't want to do a straight adaptation because they realize that there's a lot that would have to be adjusted or just wouldn't play quite as well in 2018 It'll be interesting to see one way or the other. Hopefully. It could also be a slog. You're right. I don't know. (laughs) Um, This is news that really excited me personally. I I don't know how much it excites you guys. But um, in Marvel Comics, Ironheart, who is a sort of Iron Man's protege, she's a a 15-year-old black girl from Chicago named Riri Williams, she's getting a new series that she's starring in, and it's going to be written by Eve Ewing Eve is a poet, uh, writer, author, playwright, and activist who lives in Chicago. She's, uh, she's a writer whose career I've followed for a long time, and I really like her stuff on Twitter and really admire how hard she's worked for the city of Chicago. She's been really tireless in her activism and trying to make the city a better place through education. And she's talked a lot about how she'd like to get her own Marvel title, and now she gets one. And it's a new, really exciting character who was created a few years ago by Brian Michael Bendis. He recently left Marvel for DC, and now she's gonna give her her own book. And I think it's just really cool. It's not every day you get to see somebody who just, you feel like really deserves a dream gig, like writing a comic at Marvel, but I feel like Eve does. And I, I'd be interested in seeing somebody really take Ironheart and make her a cool <laughs> character. Chris, what are you laughing
3: at? I'm sorry. It has nothing to do with you guys. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Mike, I I recorded my closet, and my cat is currently trying to get into the closet by putting her paws under the door, and so I'm just trying to keep the noise down, but uh, she was too cute, and I let out a giggle. I'm sorry.
0: I I thought you were laughing at my, like, standing, at my geeking out over it. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I felt ashamed for a minute, but I'm back. I'm feeling good about it. That's all I had. I just wanted to give a little book report on Evie Wing and how cool it is that she gets her own Ironheart title. A character who I feel like is really good and just probably hasn't had the right voice behind her yet because um, she's mostly been written by like white men in their 40s or 50s, maybe. Uh, although not terribly. She is in uh, the Champions book by Mark Wade, and I, I like uh, some of the work that's been done there. But it'll be cool to see her get a title from.
2: I think it's interesting that they've... Like, what Marvel has done with, like, some... I I mean, I I don't want to say, like, lesser known. Just, like, I guess lesser known in the comics world uh, as, like, some of the writers. Like, I'm just thinking, like, like Roxane Gay and even ta Coates, like, Evan Narcisse and, like, some people that they've handed over the reins to who, like, are clearly comic fans and who clearly are, like, super talented. I think it's a really... Like, it's a really cool thing that they're actually, like, turning these books over to be written by people who like look like the characters that they're writing. I feel like that's a really interesting thing that they're doing. And I, I think like it's paid some really great dividends because you know, all those series I think have done really well. Um, you know, the fact that Narcissus series was like received so well and, you know, knowing that Coates now has been moved to Captain America, it seems like maybe some of those experiments could really pay off. So hopefully this will be another case. Um, I hope this is something that they can just keep sustaining um, and they don't stick to kind of one-offs.
0: I think it's interesting that we we talked, I think, last time about DC lining up a murderer's row of really of some of the best writers in the industry right now for their biggest characters. Brian Michael Bendis, who we already mentioned, is on Superman. Tom King on Batman. In November, G. Willow Wilson is kicking off her Wonder Woman arc. Uh, Grant Morrison on Green Lantern. Uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick on Aquaman. This, this is a this is a crazy lineup, and Marvel's going in kind of an interesting, different route where they're finding, like you said, right they're finding fans, people who don't necessarily have a lot of experience in the comic book industry, but have expressed a lot of their love for the industry and are who are accomplished in their own writing in their own right. But writing comics is a different medium. It's not a given that just because you can write a really good essay in the Atlantic or a really good poem that you're going to be able to write a really good comic book, but Marvel's going to take a chance and, and give them some of their, uh, some, sometimes some lesser known characters and see if they can build them into something that's big, which is why Roxanne Gay was given the Dora book, which is why Evie uh, Wing is taking over Ironheart. Ta-Nehisi Coates was brought in on Black Panther back before the movie when a lot of people didn't know who Black Panther was. I like the risk taking that they're doing over there and I hope it continues to do really well. DC's strategy of just getting great comic book writers to put on their biggest titles was definitely working out well for them. But, I don't know. It's an interesting two different strategies to, to follow. there There's a lot of fun comic books coming out of it. And then we'll just close out our, our talk about the news really briefly with a, the, a very rare like storyline that, that kind of took over Twitter for a few days and was interesting for us at least because this is just not a subject that's broached very often. But Batman was outed as an atheist in his own comic book series in Batman issue 53. It's pretty rare for comics to delve into the religious lives of their superheroes. But Tom, if anybody was going to do it, it'd be Tom King. Who's always very, who's been very interested in the emotional world of Bruce Wayne. So he delved into Batman's religious beliefs uh, and the fact that Batman is not a God. It's always a little weird when comic books do get too much into religion because so much of comic books is involved in like, There's Thor, God of Thunder in Marvel Comics, and uh, there's both God and Satan featured pretty regularly over at DC Comics, along with Angels and the Afterlife and the Supernatural. So anybody out and out saying they're an atheist in DC Comics or Marvel Comics, you kind of raise your eyebrows at a little bit. I think that both Marvel and DC have sort of decided that people who are complete atheists in their world just... Sort of brush off anything they see as supernatural as being just a very advanced science from a different realm they don't totally understand yet, which works well enough. But that's a skeptical approach to it, but um, it's a good. I would recommend the the Batman arc right now that Tom King is doing is is excellent. The storyline takes place in a a trial. Uh, Bruce Wayne is called in as a member of a jury. He's uh, on a jury that is deliberating the fate of Mister Freeze, who Batman actually put in jail. And now he's on the jury that has to decide what's going to happen to him. And so Bruce Wayne is trying to figure out how much of a role he should play on this jury. And during his conversations with his other jurors, his conversation about spirituality and, and faith comes up. I think that religion is kind of a difficult one to broach with comics. It's a difficult subject matter. But but like I said, I think if anybody could do it, it'd be Tom King. And, and I would recommend, if you want to read this, if you like the idea of seeing Batman talk about spirituality... Uh, Go ahead and pick up Batman issues 51 through 53 where, where that's covered. It, it is a well done story. The whole series is, is really, really good. It's a good time to be reading Batman. If you're a fan of the character.
1: So what was Twitter saying about it? Curious.
0: I think the bit, like the big, <laughs> the thing I kept seeing is, is what I was talking about, about how, how is Batman an atheist? He's like died and come back to life or he's gone to hell or, or, what, you know, dumb nerd stuff. When we tweeted about it, I think we got retweeted by like, did you guys see this by like the Harvard Skeptics Associate? I didn't know that Harvard had a skeptics association, but uh, they were very excited that we were talking about skepticism in comic books, and so they were all talking about how how this proves just how smart Batman
1: really is. Maybe they'd like to. Speak
0: <laughs> well, there is something for everybody in con- like whatever whatever religion or lack of religion you profess. Uh, there is a pretty broad spec like array of characters with different religious beliefs and whenever they ch- try to get into them it's it's interesting Matt Murdoch, Matt Murdock, Daredevil's a really big one. His uh, Catholicism has played a really significant role in a, in the TV show too. They've really leaned into that. It's cool.
3: yeah, you did a really good job of giving a good rundown of like how like certain characters face on Twitter. So if anyone hasn't checked that out, definitely go look at uh, the thread that Tyler put up on Cape Town Pod.
0: Cape Town Pod took a lot of hard-hitting investigation. There's actually a website that goes really in-depth on it. It was very easy. I just repurposed a lot of their content. Somebody had a lot more time than me. (laughs) Uh, And with that, we are... Oh, speaking of... This kind of work, Speaking of religious characters or lack thereof, he did make an appearance on the list. Uh, We're going to talk about Iron Fist this week. We'll see how this one goes because I do like Iron Fist, the character. I like the comic book series a lot. The TV show is really bad so far. The second season comes out uh, just a few days after this episode is going to launch. How many of you have seen any episodes of The Iron Fist show? All of them. All of them? Yeah, me too, Chris. Yeah. Sorry. I've watched
1: one and a half episodes.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Good. That's that's probably <laughs> where it should stop. <laughs> I read the recap on Wikipedia. Oh, that's
0: good. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's yeah. even better. Yeah. I think, I, Ryan, you had the yeah. happiest experience of all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to know, Hannah, as somebody who saw one and a half episodes, what's your take? Like, it was only really about 90 minutes in, but it probably felt like a few days.
1: It wasn't that bad, but that, like I see that's a one and a half episodes, so I I feel like I haven't, you know, like sometimes where you like watch like, you know, six hours with the television, and then you're just like, well, that was a colossal waste of my time. I'm not bitter about it yet. <laughs> I haven't invested. The time. Oh, that's good. I thought upon a very obviously like quick introduction to the show that it probably, based upon the production value it probably would have done better on like an abc or you know like network television i think that the thing that like stood out to me the the writing was subpar but like the action scenes you know the the actual fighting the martial arts scenes weren't as good as we've seen them at like you know daredevil that's like one of the, the most awesome you know, parts of that show. Um,
0: That's weird, even, that it was so bad after Daredevils were so good.
1: Yeah, so that stood out. It's like, don't you have, like, amazing people, like, you can hire for this the show? Like, same same network? So that was kind of puzzling. But yeah, I thought it, it, just, it just didn't match up to the quality of the other shows in that way. And had it been on a different network, I think it probably would have, like, gotten by without, like, you know, the, the terrible reviews it got. I'm probably going to watch a few more episodes just so I can feel like I have a, a bit a bit more of a well-rounded opinion about it. Um, I'm more curious about you and uh, Chris having dedicated hours upon hours of your life to season one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it is a lot. It was a lot of time. Chris, what'd you think?
3: It was the show that really like turned me off from Marvel shows, like on, on Netflix. I think, I think I just realized like, I don't, have to invest myself in every single show or episode that uh that comes on. And so it was kind of the straw that broke the camels back. And uh but like I don't even necessarily think that it needs to be recasted or anything. Like, I feel like anytime I see Finn Jones at Comic Cons, he's having fun with it. I wish the showrunners would, uh, honestly just let him be more of himself and capture more of an arrogant, but kind of charming rich kid, uh, instead of this incredibly droll character that just kind of bores me to tears that we see like episode after episode. I don't know if there's actually a redeeming like a redemption arc for this show at this point. Like, I wonder if they're just kind of like filling it out just because for the sake of like giving it a second season. But I think I like my biggest hang up on it is that I'll, I'll truly never forgive it for like ruining one of my favorite iron fist arcs of all time, like through that little tur- the tournament in the warehouse, which like, it just like totally played down this really awesome story arc from oh, horrible. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, Wait, um, they did that?
0: Yeah, yes. They used oh. the old Netflix like abandoned warehouse fight. There must be some sort of like Netflix tax write off for warehouses and abandoned shipyards because they make an appearance in every Netflix <laughs> show. Or somebody in Netflix owns ones and just like, "We'll just use the warehouse." But they used the fight from what I would have, like from the really great arc, the Immortal Iron Fist by by Matt Fraction, uh, and they recast it in a warehouse, and it, it's pretty bad.
3: They put that entire arc within like a 20 minute section of an episode. That's
0: that's really unfortunate. Unless we talk about that.
2: (laughs) They should be arrested. Well, it was, it
0: was, um, the season one was the showrunner was a guy by the name of Scott Buck. Scott Buck at the time of Iron Fist was most famous for, uh, being the showrunner for all the bad, uh, seasons of Dexter uh, which very famously started out really strong and then got worse and worse the more uh, Scott Buck got involved in it. Then he came to Iron Fist, also did a bad job there. Then he went to uh, the Inhumans. All, that show also did not go very well. So I'm not, he must be really good in a boardroom because his shows don't do very well at all, but he keeps getting work. So good on him. I think you're right, Chris. I think a big part of the problem is they met Finn Jones, the lead, is just from somebody in the comics who's such a kind of a quirky, sort of like almost a Han Solo type character, somebody who uh, feels almost always almost over his head, just kind of barely clinging on, barely ahead of of the rest of the plot, like able to keep his his head above water, to being a, a very drab, brooding, in a really boring way character on the show that just doesn't work at all. It works pretty well for Daredevil. Daredevil is a tortured character, and and the performances there really lend themselves to Charlie Cox, as Matt Murdock does a good job of of showcasing that emotional trauma. Finn Jones just doesn't quite have that same knack. But I think, like you say, I think he could do a pretty good sort of a, a little more bumbling, a little more lighthearted. You saw a little bit of a glimpse of that in the Defenders show that came out last year, but they would really have to lean, maximize that. Yeah, like you said, Crit... I'm not sure there's a there's a a happy ending here for this show.
3: Yeah, it is unfortunate because I do like I feel like I really wanted this to succeed, and I don't. I for whatever reason I'm like I was really excited for Finn Jones to be on this when I really didn't have a reason to be
0: because he was coming off of Game of Thrones. Yeah, is that where you
3: yeah yeah. So, but even that like there wasn't like really any standout things, but like you kind of had to you got to had, had a little bit of hope for it. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I I think I really enjoy, like, how much he does, like, even though this thing has gotten trashed, like, he still is very much into it and, like, wants it to succeed and, like, still, like, goes to cons and things like that. So part of me wants this season to be really good from the trailers that I've seen, just more of his fist glowing and him hitting the pavement and everybody falling down, like, which... It might be all that it it's going to be, but yeah, we'll see.
0: <laughs> Iron Fist is a really tough needle to thread for, e- even in the comics, There, there's kind of a complicated history with the character. Uh, there's a lot of issue, sort of problematic issues to, to dance around and to handle. And sometimes those have been handled really well, and sometimes they have not been handled well, and we'll discuss that a little bit in the script. In 1949, a young academic by the name of Joseph Campbell published his very first book. A longtime friend of literary luminaries like John Steinbeck, Campbell had fallen under the sway of a dashing, intelligent young adventurer and ladies' man named Ed Ricketts, who made his living as a marine biologist and would go on to inspire the character of Doc in Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Like Steinbeck, Campbell wanted to write a novel with a Ricketts-inspired character as the protagonist, but unlike Steinbeck, he never finished it. But during his time writing, he did come up with a theory about heroes, not just his hero or Ed Ricketts, but all heroes from all time, from Gilgamesh to Jesus to Frodo Baggins. He theorized that there's one arching myth to all great stories, what he called the monomyth, According to his theory, the basic gist, in his own words, from his definitive book on the subject, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, is this. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. If you've done any literature study, you're probably familiar with this. It's called The Hero's Journey, or to use the name Campbell himself borrowed from James Joyce, the monomyth. Campbell himself loaded this theory with lots of philosophy from Carl Jung and believed that his monomyth wasn't just the key to telling a good story, but could unlock the secret to life itself. Aren't we all, in some ways, a hero on our own journey? And don't we all long for the power to bestow boons on our fellow man? Maybe so. But there was one thing Campbell failed to address, something that has complicated the idea of the hero's journey ever since. It's the idea of the white savior. About 25 years after the publication of the hero with a thousand faces, Roy Thomas was at Marvel comics scrambling for a new idea. It was 1974 and Marvel was experimenting with genre superheroes, borrowing hot elements from broader pop culture and leveraging them into superhero stories. This had already worked for one character, Luke Cage, who was explicitly drawn from the wave of exploitation films. The next idea was to borrow from the short-lived cultural obsession with kung fu movies. Thomas was watching kung fu flicks looking for inspiration when a phrase in the movie he was watching caught his ear, the ceremony of the iron fist. Thomas dug the sound of the name but hesitated to even bring it up to his boss, Stan Lee, because, well, Marvel already had an iron Man why would they want an Iron Fist? But to his surprise, Stan, never one to shy away from capitalizing on successes of the past, dug the name. Thomas sat down with his friend, the artist Gil Kane, and they got to work, drawing heavily from a 1939 character called Amazing Man, who'd been created by Bill Everett before he went on to success as the co-creator of Daredevil. The story of Iron Fist was pure hero's journey, A wealthy young boy from New York City, Danny Rand, was with his parents when they were killed in a plane crash over the Himalayas. As fate would have it, Danny himself was rescued by the citizens of Kunlun, a mystical city inhabited by an order of Shaolin-like monks. Taken in, Danny is trained in the ways of Kunlun and eventually proves to be the very best student there, even going so far as to best a magic dragon and rip its heart from its chest granting Danny the power of the immortal Iron Fist and making him the protector of the realm of Kunlun, a designation that also somehow involved Danny leaving Kunlun to return to New York, reclaim his father's empire, and become a costumed superhero in his own right. Since then, Iron Fist has been a defender, an avenger, and a member of his own flagship team with his best friend Luke Cage, the Heroes for Hire, who have privatized superheroics, though they're known to waive their fee on fairly regular occasion. It's a good story, but as you may have noticed, it's got a few thorny aspects. The idea of an ultra privileged white kid getting taken in by a group of Asian martial arts masters only to become the most talented one of them all, and indeed their own protector, invokes a very unpleasant trope called the white savior, an all too common trait in Western fiction in which a white person rescues non-white people and frequently takes on a messianic quality. Now this isn't necessarily bad, People from any race can and should help people of other races, but as immortalized in Rudyard Kipling's infamous 1899 poem, The White Man's Burden, the trope is fraught with racist assumptions, and those are all too often backpacked onto the hero's journey, where our hero goes somewhere foreign and other and discovers that he, and it is almost always a he, is the best one there. It's not always the case, but it often is, and in the case of Iron Fist, it was unmistakable. Something had to be done, and the answer lay in 2006, when writers Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction turned in a new series called The Immortal Iron Fist. The series struck a careful balance between the streetwise gritty crime fiction-inspired trappings of Iron Fist's New York home and the more fantastical supernatural hijinks of Iron Fist's Kung Fu origins. And more importantly, they revealed that Danny Rand wasn't the first or even the best Iron Fist. He was just one In the line of a long succession of Iron Fists from all over the world. Men and women, old and young, a huge variety of cultures and ethnicities. He wasn't a white savior who'd bested an ancient practice no one else had been able to crack, just one more in a succession that stretches back to the earliest days of humanity. It's a great, great story. Joseph Campbell's theory of storytelling has a lot of merit, and it's been used to tell some really great stories. Lots of narratives, superhero and otherwise, depend on the hero's journey, from Harry Potter to the Matrix. But there's also a danger in seeing yourself and your culture as the central figure in a global story and imagining that everyone else in their histories has to revolve around you and yours. For Danny Rand, his story grew deeper, richer, and better when other heroes in their own journeys were given equal time. That's what helps heroes transcend their own journeys and become something more than just a myth. They become immortal. Immortal. As part of your prep work, what comics did you guys read?
2: I revisited, and I don't know if I ever actually finished it, but the whole Brubaker uh, fraction run on the Immortal Iron Fist because, like, that's generally that's generally like the best. I've read a little bit of his uh, team up stuff with Luke Cage. There was that relaunch in what year was that? Like 2013, 2014, I want to so say. it's just called Power Man
0: and Iron Fist, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And that that was pretty good, too. Um, that really leaned into more of the um, slapstick side, I think. Um, or at least, like, gave the characters a bigger sense of humor. Whereas, like, Immortal Iron Fist definitely, like, leans into kind of the kung fu, um, like, mystical aspects of it. But, I mean, I think, like, it is very uncontroversial to say, but uh, Immortal Iron Fist is amazing.
0: It's a great comic book. It's so good. Matt Fraction, David Asia, and, and Ed Brubaker put together just such a good story that leaned into the real history of the character in a way that was meaningful, but also updated it in a way that was really, um that was en- emotionally
2: engaging. It's a great story.
1: Yeah, I read that one as well.
2: Even after Fraction stepped away from the book, um Dwayne, and i really sorry to butcher his last name, Swierczynski.
0: Yeah,
2: I don't know how to, Swirsinski or
0: something? But however you say his last name, he's great.
2: Yeah, he continued the series and like, he did a really good job. I mean, it doesn't quite hit the same heights, I would say, but um he definitely continues in the same vein. And I think the exploration of Danny Rand's mortality, um, despite the name of the book, um, is is really interesting and like just plays on his relationships really well too. Hannah, you said you read it too?
1: Oh yeah. Um I had never read it before. I have heard of it. Um and obviously everyone here is a big Bru Baker fan, so it's no surprise that it's, you know, amazing. Uh, you know, one thing I thought that was like funny, and maybe no one else thought this. It definitely could have just been something that popped in my head, but I feel like Danny Rand is kind of a like. There's so many uh, similarities to me, like uh, and Bruce Wayne, like circumstantial ones, like not in personality, but it's like if Bruce Wayne had like found Buddhism, but...
0: <laughs> instead of being atheist.
1: exactly, instead of <laughs> <laughs> he was a Buddhist an atheist, yeah, and instead of like you know his like, Bruce Wayne's alter ego is, like, charming and, you know, that suave Bruce Banner. But, like, in reality, he's, like, you know, he's very serious and, like, not the life of the party. Um, whereas, you know, Danny Rand is, his true personality is, like, that charismatic, kind of, like, not smooth uh, character. But I, I kept, no, I thought that that was something I, I kept going back to when I was reading it. Um, and obviously, like, you know, because Bruce Wayne was trained by um Ra's al Ghoul. Anyway. That might not be interesting to anyone. <laughs> well, no, I think it,
0: I think it is because I think it's... Even when I was writing some of the the script that we heard, it does sound a lot like the story of Bruce Wayne. But like you say, I think what's really interesting, and uh, Matt Fraction would go on to explore this dynamic a little further in his Hawkeye run, which he did after uh, The Immortal Iron Fist. What you get with Danny Rand, The Iron Fist, is a character who has the skills. Like, he has the actual... Technical physical abilities to be a superhero, but he does not have that larger than life persona of like a Captain America or a Captain Marvel or, a, or or a Bruce Wayne, for that matter. He's very much just a guy who happens to be really good at fighting. And he almost becomes a superhero out of lack of anything better to do with it instead of this Bruce Wayne's like sacred cause or Peter, even Peter Parker's with great power comes great responsibility. Danny Rand is just kind of a dude who we all definitely 100% know, or maybe are, but he just happens to know a lot of Kung Fu and he goes out and he beats at bad guys. And that's people try to do that a lot. They try to tell that story, but very rarely is it done as well as Brubaker and Fraction did with the immortal lion fist. You get the sense of a real, just kind of like, vaguely kind of fratty guy behind the iron fist mask and it works really well it's a really engaging story
2: i mean i think leaning into some of the mystical elements works really well too because um they somehow managed to thread that needle of like homage to kung fu movies without dabbling in like orientalism i think um so you know it like you have these people with these like insane powers and you have kind of the classic You know, if you've seen old Kung Fu movies from the 60s and 70s, you have these kung fu poses that have all these like really elaborate names, and you have a lady who like bursts spiders out of her stomach and stuff like that. Um, and you know, the whole thing is kind of predicated on the fact that uh, Danny Rand like punched a dragon's heart. But like somehow like it all works and feels like very epic in this story. And I don't think it like leans on some of the tropes, and I actually think, and this is something that I think that the like the show could have done to uh, mitigate some of the criticism it received for making Danny Rand a white guy is that like, it makes it very clear that Danny Rand is only holding onto this mantle for a short time and that he's one of like a long path. And he's like this tiny piece of a much, much larger world. And I don't feel like we got that sense in the TV show or even, the or, or in the defenders, which I did see more of, because I, I think it's been weird to see Netflix try to shoehorn him into this kind of street-level fight, which, you know, in the comics he has been, too, as part of the Defenders and his Power Man and Iron Fist. But I think um, giving him that backdrop of being part of this much, much larger story that's taking place out of sort of the usual superheroes of New York, punch Galactus in the face kind of storyline um, just makes it really interesting and feel really fresh.
3: You really nailed what I love about Iron Fist stories, which is like that throwback to like old martial arts movies and stories, and even games that I just I really loved growing up. I think both in the Fraction and Brew Baker run, and even in the latest uh, Brisson run that started in twenty seventeen. You know, one has a fighting tournament, uh, while Brisson's has this like trials, like these trials for Danny's to regain his chi, and like even like parts of it (laughs) reminded me of like. Mortal Kombat lore oh, like sure. yeah. there's things like that that like it just like it's a nice little escape from like some of the more traditional superhero stuff that we do read about so yeah I think that like it plays into that a lot for me I read I, I still have a little bit to go through the prison run but like it's a really fun story and it, it kind of plays through these trials of like the like one of the opening scenes is like somebody finding him and taking him like on a boat to this Island. And he has to go through these trials to regain his power. It just kind of like follows that like old, like Kung Fu martial arts movie narrative of uh, like going through the trials to like, to get to your full strength, which I just, I really love. So um as these guys have said, if you're going to pick up a iron fist book, the Mortal iron fist is like absolutely the way to go.
0: And I think that's something that the TV show, where it went, it went off in a lot of ways for me, but I think where it, a fundamental problem that the TV show had is that it wanted its backdrop to really be corporate America. It, it tries to structure a lot of its plot around um, the business world and around like this sort of jockeying for power and success. Between Danny Rand, who's back to reclaim his father's multi-million dollar company, and his childhood friends who have taken over during his absence while he was learning how to be a, a kung fu master. And they, the, the showrunner, Scott Buck, and, and Netflix thought that that corporate world would differentiate it from... Luke Cage, which takes place in Harlem, or Jessica Jones, with its private eye vibe, or or Daredevil, with a lot of its Roman Catholic imagery. But instead, it just looked very, very bland and very uh, like any other, like any other of the millions of shows about white guys and their businesses on TV. And it wasn't interesting at all. When the key to Iron Fist is is really leaning into the kung fu lore, which is hard to do on a Netflix budget and hard to uh, make a part of the Netflix world that they were building with street-level shows like Daredevil or Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and now The Punisher. So I I think I get what they were trying to do, and and maybe in the right hands it could have worked. I I just, in my opinion, I don't think it did. And I don't know if it's going to. Although I, I would say that they kind of turned a little bit of a corner for the character of Danny Rand on the Defenders show. Who knows if they can lean into that or not. But yeah, the, if there's one thing you should take away from this is if you want to read about Iron, if you like Iron Fist or you want to know more about Iron Fist, the show isn't the place to start. But the Immortal Iron Fist run by Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction, which we will have a link to in the comics, is, uh, is the place to start. It's one of the best comic books that you could really hope to read from that decade.
1: Well, I, I think it's kind of funny because, you know, the um, Power Man and Iron Fist series is pretty, like, you know, I think it was Chris that was pretty slapsticky. Um, which it, it doesn't make that is, that's not like a criticism, it's, it's, I think it's really fun to read. I like it. Yeah. But it's so, it's so different, um, you know, from the immortal iron fist, which is pretty, it's very serious. The story, uh, if you're someone who typically likes, you know, the comedies more like that's, uh, that's a fun run to read. But I think even with immortal iron, iron fist, which, which balances it out pretty nicely is like all the, you know, the mythical elements to it make it enjoyable and they make it fun. So like it's a serious story but it doesn't, you know, doesn't take itself t- like so seriously that it's not um taking you to a fun place when you're reading it.
0: You hinted at something Hannah that I do we haven't really talked much about Luke Cage. Uh in the comics canonically Iron Fist and Luke Cage are best buds. Uh and they they even have a team, the Heroes for Hire. They privatize superheroing. You can hire them to be your superheroes and they'll come. and it's not like the most they're not quite as maybe altruistic as some of the other characters, but hey, they, they got to get paid. But I do like that their, their friendship, it, there's not a lot of comics where just friendship, like platonic friendship, is really key to the character. But frequently for Iron Fist, his friendship with Luke Cage is seen as a really core part of who he is. There are other like close friendships in comics. uh Batman and Robin, uh, Captain America and Bucky. But I don't know of of any characters that I would say are roll off the tongue quite as quickly as Luke Cage and Iron Fist heroes for hire They're They're very much linked and that's kind of cool to have two characters with a, just a really strong bond of being pals.
2: I actually really like an immortal Iron Fist when uh, like Misty, Luke and Colleen all show up Um, because it, like, is this really cool mishmash of sort of Iron Fist 2 worlds where, like, you know, he's this sort of avatar of one of the seven heavens and his one life. And then on the other one, like, all his friends are basically roasting him for having his plans suck. That's a really interesting juxtaposition that I feel like works really well. And I I mean, you know, I like that Luke and Iron Fist are friends, too. And I like that Jessica gives Iron Fist crap um, and that, you know... Uh, Danny Rand has trouble navigating his relationship with Misty and like all those things just humanize the character I think in a much more um, interesting way than a lot of times he's portrayed in both the comics as well as in the TV show where he's just sort of like whining that no one likes him.
0: (sighs) that is a great summary of the TV show. One of the good things, we brought up Colleen. Colleen Wing is a really important character in the comics. She's played by Jessica Henwick on the TV show. And I would say she is a bright spot for the show for me. I don't know how you felt about her, Chris, but I thought whenever she was on screen, I was a little more engaged. She's a good actor.
3: Yeah, like, I mean, she took away, like, I would second screen most of the show. And then I feel like whenever she was on, like, I would pay more attention.
0: In so far, she had a, an uphill climb. In my book, But she did a pretty good job with it. And I think that's as close to a positive note as we can end the show about Iron Fist on. But no, I want the take, big takeaway to be here is that Iron Fist has a lot of great comics, and I hope you can go read them. Just because the TV show didn't leverage those into a great series doesn't mean there's not a lot of good books out there that are well worth digging into. But thank you all for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, you can head over to our Apple podcast page, uh, give us a good review if you would, and uh, you can subscribe to our series. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod or on Facebook at Cape Town Pod. Ryan usually is in charge of the Facebook. I handle the tweets, uh, and we just do it for you, just for the benefit of you. You can get a little preview of what's coming throughout the week and also some other news that we don't always get a chance to discuss here on the podcast. Uh, We want to give a shout-out to Chad Michael Snavely. Uh, He makes sure that we sound good on the ones and twos. And with that, we'll wrap it up. We'll see you next time. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Youngblood.
1: I'm Hannah Mazzell.
0: And I'm Ryan Hamm. No need for thanks, citizen. We'll see you next time. Bye.